0: Inside Books with Breeda Brown.
1: Welcome to Inside Books, a programme about the magical world of writing. I'm Breeda Brown and in each episode of Inside Books we chat to people associated with the world of books, including well-known authors, publishers, editors, agents, critics, booksellers and more. You'll find Inside Books on all audio platforms and our Twitter handle is at InsideBooksIore and you'll also find lots of other interesting books news. Now, before I tell you who my guest is today, I have a confession to make. I'm a huge fan of the BBC TV series Death in Paradise. I've watched it from day one and ten seasons later still watching it and still loving it. It's set in a police station on a Caribbean island, but the unusual aspect is that the lead detective is a British policeman played over the years by well-known actors such as Ben Miller, Chris Marshall and our very own Ardal O'Hanlon of Father Ted fame. So So when I heard that the creator of the show was also a novelist and that he had just released his latest book, of course, we had to have him on Inside Books. Robert Thurgood, welcome.
0: Thank you very much for having me, Brida. And thank you for that lovely introduction. I've already got imposter syndrome.
1: <laughs> <laughs> don't, be, don't be silly. And it's funny because I've been trying to analyse why I love Death and Paradise so much. And it's probably because it's a combination of the fact that there's a crime to be solved, the absolutely beautiful sun-drenched location of a Caribbean island, but it's also the pure escapism of, of the whole thing. Is that what you actually set out to achieve when you created it?
0: Absolutely. I mean, when I came up with the idea in sort of 2007-ish, one of the things that I knew it would really have going for it would be that you know if it was set in the Caribbean, you could feel that Judith Chalmers would walk into shot and say, <laughs> you know, here we are on the holiday. And I thought that you know we've always loved as a nation uh, cozy crime, you know, golden age crime like Agatha Christie, and I was obsessed with Agatha Christie when I was growing up. And Midsummer Murders was very big when I was trying to set this uh, Death in Paradise up, as was Jonathan Creek. But I thought we could do that obsessed in the caribbean and and above all else what being on a small caribbean island gave you i hoped was that um you don't have forensics you don't have ballistics so it meant that you could send all of the forensic stuff off island and whilst it was off island it would leave the detectives to solve crimes almost like it was a 1920s 1930s agatha christie novel
1: and they had to very much rely on actual policing skills in that sense then didn't they
0: well it's it's willfully old fashioned I think it's <laughs> fair to say but back in 2000 and, I mean I came up with the idea in 2007 it took me a couple of years to sell it because I was very unknown um I didn't have a TV writing credit um it was also very expensive we didn't have nowadays with Netflix and um Camera equipment being lighter and and travel being cheaper, we can we can shoot things all around the world. And you get shows like The Night Manager. You know, back in two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight-ish, it was c- considered exotic to have a show um, like Ballycus Angel that was set abroad, yeah. or Monica of the Glen that was set. Also, I mean, you know, couldn't be nearer really. But Wild at Heart you know, set in Africa, that was um, as far away as we would go. So I was just pitching this idea around London, and people were going, it's a nice idea. They got the idea that it was, you know, the the holiday show, you know, that it was in paradise. But I didn't have any credits. It was too expensive to shoot. We didn't really shoot abroad. And then thanks to the BBC sort of buying into the idea, um, they were able to push it through and lo and behold, you know, a short two years later, which were the most painful two years of my life, because the nearer you get to the green light, the more you're worried they're going to take it away. And you know, you're running on empty financially because you can't take any other jobs because you're trying to develop this idea. A short two years later, we finally managed to get it to screen. But it was, um, it was quite the journey, I have to say, a roller coaster from my point of view. And, and at no point did I know it'd be as successful as it turned out to be.
1: I think you just wrote it because you wanted to uh, be on set on a Caribbean island.
0: <laughs> well, perhaps unsurprisingly, um, you may <laughs> be, uh, yes. I don't really like really hot climates. <laughs> I don't like really humid climates. I'm terrified that sharks are going to, I mean, even, I grew up in Essex. Even in Clacton. I remember, I'd be worried about the sharks. So the kind of neurotic sort of englishman abroad who's really out of his depth that we lampoon in death and paradise that's basically me
1: perfect now we know where that uh, where that character uh, came from of course and i was going to say it is a co-production though as well isn't it with um, with france television
0: that's absolutely right and again you know it y- you realize how lucky you are to come up with the right idea at the right time because having sort of trawled this idea, my untitled copper in the Caribbean idea, you know, uh, around London production companies. um, The the business of expense was considerable. The BBC offer a certain amount of money per hour of drama. And if you are gonna spend more than that, I mean, we spend all of our money on flights, really. Mm -hmm. Just getting actors and equipment and crew out to the Caribbean uh, just eats into our budget. But at the same time as we were trying to set up, uh, you know, the show in London, france television were trying to do a co-commission with the bbc because they wanted to try and learn how the bbc made drama and so when i was thinking of the idea originally it was going to be set on a british caribbean island but when the french got involved they suggested that we shoot on guadeloupe uh you know a good eu country only the french would place a country in the caribbean within the eu (laughs) which meant that um You know, it was very easy for permits without getting into too much sort of post-Brexit chat. Uh, Staying within the EU made it very easy for us to shoot there. Um, But it also meant that they could give us the money so we could actually make the show. So um, we make it each year and it goes out in Britain. And then the poor actors, who've spent the French actors, who've spent six months out in the Caribbean shooting it, then have to come back to France and dub it into French before <laughs> it then goes out in France. Um, and the wonderful thing about the French is they love laughing at themselves. And they really encouraged us to play up the sort of the differences between Richard, in the original series between Richard Poole, the uptight Brit, and Camille, the more relaxed, uh, Parisian, sophisticated, functional human being, which certainly Richard wasn't.
1: And it really worked, though, I think. Again, as you said, yes, you're you're playing on that neurotic aspect, but that's what gives the whole programme its charm.
0: Well, it's, it's sort of tapping into, I mean, the, I, I would never be so pompous as to compare myself to that kind of William Boyd, Graham Greene, sending or even even War, you know you, you send a, a white british private school educated male idiot abroad and then laugh at them you know th- that that's a, a trope or a, or a way of an english person laughing as an english person you no know, the english are never more ridiculous than when they're abroad so you send someone abroad and and the way we've always thought of the police station and the community of people around our detective is our detective essentially goes to the Caribbean, a broken person who needs fixing. And we surround them with emotionally intelligent, witty, uh, stable, functional human beings. And then over time, the, the detective gets mended and generally they get mended at about the same time that the actor playing the part decides to leave the show because they need to come back to their home life. Because shooting abroad for that many years on the trot is actually very, very demanding.
1: And did you have any say at all in who the actors were? Well, there's a
0: the, the question of casting is a is a dark art. I'm terrible at casting, I've realized over the years. We have an amazing casting director. Who helps us find actors for the sort of stories of the week, so that uh, each episode is stuffed full of really talented, interesting actors. But when it came to the to, to the star, it's very, very hard because you're looking for someone who can do. Um, comedy but you can also do the drama but can also appear to be a detective who can hold a number of thoughts in their head and and pull off improbable impossible acting technical challenges for example they get a eureka moment every episode where they have to somehow think of what the answer is in a way that we can put flashbacks in and then they have to do a 10 minute denouement where they stand up on their hind legs and in front of a room of people, one of whom is a murderer, just talk for 10 minutes, which can take one or two days to shoot. And that's a really hard technical challenge. And also be away from home for 25 weeks on the trot. You know, our lead character, whether it's Ardle or whether it's Ralph Little at the moment, and they're in nearly every single scene. They get almost no days off. So for 25 weeks, they are either on the set or they are learning their lines because they're on the set tomorrow and it is just grinding and relentless and they are amazing heroes of the acting world um to be able to do it and still learn their lines and still hit their marks and still be funny and still be engaging and warm i mean the, the acting talent that we have access to really as from a writer's point of view blows you away because you know, sometimes those scripts can be a little bit rickety in places, and the actors can just glide over everything and seem to make everything make sense. And somebody like Ardal, the, the 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 extraordinary privilege to meet one of the greats of uh, Irish drama of comedy, and then to discover, amazingly, that he is quite simply the nicest man who has ever walked <laughs> this earth, and. I don't know. We've we've sort of been associated with him now for four or five years, and everyone who's ever bumped into him just goes, "He is the nicest man I have ever met." So it's very rare you meet or work with anyone in the industry who um, about whom. Not a single bad word could ever be said.
1: That's what we love to hear about our, our fellow Irish people, exactly. And in terms of writing for television, you know, it's it's quite a a different style and a different way than writing a novel, which we'll talk about later on. But how how do you approach an episode um, of 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 a, a series like Death in Paradise?
0: Well, funnily enough, we were doing it this morning, actually, in an in an office. So it, it's very hard. Uh, for me to do it without referencing the the novel, but if I tell you everything about how we do the television show, just imagine the very polar opposite, and that's the novel. <laughs> okay. So okay. with the with the TV show, for starters, you've got a script editor and an assistant and a story producer and an executive producer, all of whom, like me, have been on the show for years and years and years. So we know where the bodies are buried, Ideas that we've tried in the past that never quite worked or ideas that um, we've been wanting to try for years and years and years. Stories, we were talking this morning about Monk episodes that we particularly like. Monk is a wonderful uh, TV show that was on in the 2000s um, and starred neurotic an OCD-type detective and was very much an influence on, on Death and Paradise, I, I have to confess. We were talking about favourite Agatha Christie books. So you sit there in a room, And you get paid to talk about murder mysteries and tricks that we'd like to do. This morning, thinking about series 11, we've realised we need to do another locked room mystery. And we were sitting there going, oh, we've used up all of our locked room mystery knowledge. I obsessively read murder mysteries and we all revisit Agatha Christie, who's really the, the touchstone the show um but we would you try and find something that you've got half an idea that meets with somebody else's half an idea and then you try and build it into what could be a murder mystery and what would be the world that would fit that murder mystery is this going to be set in a radio studio in which case we're probably going to be using soundproof rooms and pre-records as a way of doing the magic trick the sleight of hand so you're just constantly talking about it and working it up and tragically the reason why i've got so many gray hairs now compared to none when i started is if that isn't enough you're also trying to develop to fit into the same 60 minute episode what's the serial going to be this week what is neville up to what is florence up to Catherine selwyn what are their stories either throughout the whole eight episode arc or what's their mini story within this episode and then as well as all of that and you're running out of time to fit all of this into 60 minutes you're also going Why is it funny? Where's the humour? Is Harry in this episode? Is there going to be some improbable problem with the motorbike uh, and sidecar? So you're just constantly talking and trying to wrestle an idea into a treatment. And then we work it all out as much as possible. I've got, I'm writing the first episode in series 11 and I'm on the seventh uh, draft of the treatment which is a prose document, um, about 20 pages long which explains beat for beat what's going to be in the episode. And that goes to the script editor and the executives and back. So it's a conversation. And compared to that with a novel where you basically come up with the idea, you go to lunch with your editor, which is delightful. Most of the um, uh, the world, of the literary world seems to be based around uh, lunches and glasses of Shabli, which is a super way to run any business if you ask me. Um, but then you're just left on your own for months at a time. And so all of that collaboration, which is so brilliant in the world of television is removed. But on the other hand, what you don't have to deal with in the world of a novel is all of those sort of quotidian awfulness of the fact that in a TV show, we can only afford four suspects. Yeah. We only have 60 minutes to play in so we can only have one dead body generally. And in the novel, the one dead body really only drives 20 to 30,000 words. You kind of need to keep killing people and we're limited by location, you know, on Guadeloupe where we film Death and Paradise, we, we've we used a lot of our locations and we redress them, but it's hard work for our location department to give us new locations for what we want. Um, and so there are always limitations, it's always compromise, it's what can we, what's the best we can do with what we've got financially geographically temporally whereas in a book you can just run a mock so with a book you're left on your own for months at a time you can do whatever you like and therefore it is terrifying
1: how long then does it take though to write an episode for tv or do you write a number of them are you writing a number of them at the same time
0: Well, for the TV show, in the early days, I wrote a lot of the show, but what we learned very quickly was that that was a way to an early grave. So what we now do is each episode will write one, each episode, forgive me, each writer will write one episode or perhaps two, depending on how schedules work, depending on who's got ideas for episodes. So in series uh, 11, which we are planning at the moment, Uh, I'm writing episode one and I shall write one episode and that's my focus and I will be working on that full time for nearer six months than four. It is an improbably long winded process because, again, that trying to make sure that you're telling a story that fits in with next week's story. So we're having to be very careful. You know, did we kill? I mean, a a very crude and obvious example. Have we had a female murderer three weeks on the trot? We have to make sure that we guard against that. So you might get a note halfway through the process that actually want to change the murderer if possible. Or if you can't change the murderer, can the other person change their murderer? You know, have we done two stabbings on the trot? You know, are we poisoning too many people, too many cahooters. That's a big one that we have to guard against. You know, when you've got two people working together, two people who you believe hate each other, are working together. So so that business of producing eight episodes, which is run by the script department, by our amazing script editor, who sits on top of that, or to be honest, like a spider in the center (laughs) of a web with writers out on the edges of this cobweb, just pulling on the little bits of string. Our script editor then tries to make sure that everyone can deliver their finished script to the best of their ability on the date that the director joins so that they can prepare it but you know once you've given it to the various heads of departments like the de- design like location managers they might say i'm really sorry we can't give you that could you change xyz so that conversation that back and forth which is generally hugely rewarding because limitations improve all creative choices you know as soon as you're pinned down and you've got no choice that's when you come up with quite interesting solutions. Um, And again, in books, what's terrifying is the blank page, the the blinking cursor where you could do anything. (laughs) Having anything is terrifying, but having limitations really helps. But equally the limitations draws the process out. So perforce, it's something like six months. And you could probably write a novel a bit more quickly then you could produce an hour of television, which is ludicrous. It is you'd when you have think thought about it. Eighty thousand words would be slower. Yeah,
1: Absolutely. And on the novels, then. So, three years into the series, then Death in Paradise, you signed a deal to write three murder mystery novels based on Richard Poole, who was your character, your main character at the time. So, firstly, before we get into that, like, had you written novels before?
0: Uh, yes like all novelists i had written before uh, when I was at university I wrote a novel that went in a drawer uh, <laughs> it's still and then there. in my late 20s I yeah no it's still uh, there's one copy of it extant and it's on my bookshelves and nobody knows where it is apart from me then in my late 20s I wrote another novel and that didn't go anywhere so it's it's the problem with writing writing is really an illness rather than a profession because I fell in love with Agatha Christie novels originally when I got into the murder mystery world with Death in Paradise, I almost instantly wanted to try my hand at writing a novel, you know, to do what Agatha Christie did, I mean, which does not suggest that I, I can get anywhere near her, but you you just want to give it a go. So when Ben Miller left the show in series two, and I was very worried that we were gonna lose the show in its entirety because little did I know that we were about to employ one of the greatest comic actors of his generation, Chris Marshall, to take over the lead and therefore save the show, which is what effectively Chris did by coming on board and being so brilliant. I was convinced that they were gonna cancel the show. And I just thought, well, maybe whilst I have currency briefly, I could get a publishing deal to try and do a new murder mystery series But I'd really learned with Death in Paradise that actually murder mystery series are very hard to come up with because you need an engaging detective or team of detectives. You need a really interesting world. You need to have a reason why it's going to be a golden age murder mystery, which is going to be solved sort of in an amateurish way effectively without ballistics and forensics. And I just thought, well, hang on, I do have that in Death in Paradise. And it is a, I mean, it wasn't a brand. That's a horrible word, but it was a, a thing so when i went to the publishing industry i said look i'd really like to try and write some original richard paul novels now that he's left some original richard paul novels but i was aware that i was slightly doing it because i just wanted to see if i could do it at all because it had been my dream my whole life to be a a novelist i also had wanted to be an actor i'd also wanted to be a tv writer so two out of three is not bad Mm -hmm. um and and I found how very, very hard it is. It, it, it is very hard writing 80,000 words of, of murder mystery because I had to learn on the job. For example, that you can't just have one, one body. In my first book, and I like all of my books, not that I've ever reread any of them, but um, as so few writers <laughs> do. Um, but in the first book, there's just one dead body. And actually, that was hard to sustain the energy of an investigation all the way through, because it is essentially flim-flam. It's an entertainment. It's designed to be engaging and disposable all at the same time. So you want to kill people. You want to body count, really. So I learned my way. And then, to segue into where we might be going anyway, once I'd sort of got a sense that I was feeling confident, or, or comfortable at least, in this world, I decided that I really wanted to write something new and original, still in the murder mystery format. And that's when the Marlowe Murder Club was created. Well, it wasn't, it about was about three years, but that's when I came up with the idea.
1: Perfect. And it, and absolutely, we will get to that in one second. Just one more question on on the uh, books. Sure. The Richard Poole books. Did the Richard Poole books end up in the series or were they totally standalone?
0: Oh, no, they're totally standalone, if only because they're stuff we couldn't do in the telly show. So the first book... Uh, is set in a retreat where I'd been really intrigued and I'd been thinking quite hard about what does the Caribbean give you that a British murder wouldn't give you? And I was sort of aware of the blistering sunshine and I wanted to do an episode where they created one of those amazing um, sort of Japanese paper houses as a place to do a retreat. And I was really intrigued by that sort of... um, the, the puppet show that you would have of having humans inside meditating whilst the sun was bleeding through the the, the, the um, diaphanous paper of the house. And when I said, I remember pitching this to Belinda, the exec on the show, <laughs> she just laughed at me, said we can't build you a Japanese paper house. So that idea we couldn't do straight into book one. On book two, I'd previously pitched an idea for somebody being pushed off some cliffs, I, and, and I was really key I knew what the trick would be. And I knew how we could do the murder mystery. And then you go to Guadeloupe and blow me down. But yes, they do have cliffs, but on the side of the islands that we cannot afford to get to, <laughs> because there's only one bridge that links the two islands of Guadeloupe. It's two separate islands. And the bridge is just a traffic jam every 9am and every 5pm. So what I was doing in the books was exploring, I mean, that's pompous, isn't it? I was just trying to tell stories that I'd come up with for the TV show that we couldn't afford or geographically, physically didn't exist. And that's what you get with books.
1: And interestingly, then, did fans of the show buy the books or was it a totally different audience, I wonder?
0: Really frustratingly, it's a totally different audience. Right. And I have, I cannot tell you how frustrating it is to be at a book signing where I found people, not many, look, this has only happened a few times, where some people know the books but don't know the TV show at all. Uh, And equally, I could probably guarantee that 99.9% of our audience who watch the TV show don't know about the books. But the books, you know, they exist, you you can still buy them, but I am hugely proud of them and I couldn't have got to where I am now without doing them, if you see what I mean.
1: Absolutely, and that brings us to The Marlowe Murder Club, which is your latest book. Now, interestingly, again, you've moved away from the Caribbean, which I'm going to miss because I do like (laughs) the sunshine, and you're back to good old England this time. So what's it about?
0: Well, The Marlowe Murder Club is something that's been bubbling away for a number of years with me. As we've been talking about, uh, the the way I've approached Death and Paradise and our male detectives is essentially to look at light-hearted, golden age murder mysteries through a a male prism, the sort of the neurotic or useless, um, you know, men and sort of laughing at men. And whilst that's fantastic, for a number of years, I've just felt a little frustrated because I'd really like to do a story that had women as the heroes and allowed women to go around solving uh lighthearted murder mysteries. And I was raised by a very flamboyant bunch of chatty, smoky, mm-hmm. drinky women from my mother to my grandmother to my great aunts, this whole sort of constellation of extraordinary women uh, who who really taught me um, you know, what storytelling was, what sense of humor was, what jokes were. And they sort of had never quite been I have to be careful when I phrase this, but they'd never really been the stars of their own lives necessarily. You know, my great aunt Jess, who was an enormous influence on me, had never married. She had a boyfriend, but she'd never married. And the sense was that she couldn't marry because to marry would have been somehow to diminish her, you know, to give shares of her to another man who'd then control her. So she'd stayed single her whole life. Um, And my mother, who is a, very very bright uh, taught me about crosswords and we do the crossword every day hugely bright talented woman chose to be a housewife and a mother at which she was brilliant but you do wonder what other choices she might have made so i wanted to try and collect together a group of people a group of women who wouldn't normally be the heroes of a murder mystery and I was going to set it in Marlow because I wanted to do something much closer to home Mm -hmm. and I live in Marlow so to do research for this book I just had to you know walk around my streets with my streets the streets with our dogs and and just talk to people and sort of base characters on friends and things and that they are so the story would be about Judith who's very much based on my grandmother Betty, who every night would have a glass of whiskey at 6pm religiously. So Judith, she's a widower, 77 years old. She lives on her own in a nice big house on the River Thames, independently wealthy. She sets crosswords for a living and she goes nude swimming every night. (laughs) And she goes swimming up the Thames and she bumps into a murder. Her neighbour across the way, across the river, is shot dead. And when the police think it's a suicide, she gathers together this sort of coterie of friends or who they then become friends, who then try and solve the crime together. And it being a light-hearted murder mystery, you might be able to guess whether or not they're successful. They are successful.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And in terms of plotting, then, do you sit down and plot at the very start in terms of start to finish or do you just see where it goes?
0: Well, I have to, because I'm quite process driven, um, I have to plot the whole thing. But it's not just that. It's also because for me, it's the the ideal murder mystery story is one where you have all of the characters that you fall in love with. And you have the world of that murder mystery that week or in that novel, which you also fall in love with. And then that has to feed into the denouement and so i actually start with the denouement with the reveal with what is the trick if listeners think of agatha christie and you think of something like the murder of roger ackroyd you know she started with what's the punchline or if you think of murder on the orient express um you know that it couldn't have been a gun that committed the murder because they only have six bullets in the chamber. You, and it couldn't be poison because how... I'm not going to spoil uh, murder <laughs> mysteries, even if they're nearly 100 years old. But so you, you realise that that had to be a murder by a knife. And suddenly you get 13 knife wounds in a body and one knife. So there's something about the, the ending of the story that actually informs the sorts of people who would be in it and the sorts of people who would have a motive. And what you're sort of doing is nonetheless starting sort of at the end of the story and working backwards through the story towards the beginning you're also trying to start at the beginning with fun characters who the audience or the reader will find engaging and then moving forward through the story and then you're constantly finding that the two halves don't meet and you have to throw away one half and so it's a constant sort of churn of trying to come up with something that is hugely engineered every moment every clue is completely th- thought out. You know the the foreshadowing, which might appear to be subtle, it's all completely, you know, done to to uh, to within an inch of its life. But then when you read it, the idea is it should read effortlessly, like it was just tossed off, like somebody telling you a yarn down the pub, and and that is the challenge, and that's what every murder mystery writer, apart from Agatha Christie, fails to achieve. But we continue to try. You know this this sort of quixotic desire to try to just do something nearly as good as what she might do. And that's what keeps you going.
1: And how long did it take you to write?
0: Well, this took me quite a while because um, I had to pace it within Death in Paradise work. But the actual sitting down and writing, writing, writing took a year, took a, a whole year. And halfway through the process, the pandemic, the lockdown, kicked in, and so that was quite challenging because it was, as everyone knows, it was very hard to stay focused in those first few weeks and months of of confusion and fear and, and, and bafflement, and also trying to work out, you know, family and kids and that sort of thing. So it was a year, and there were times where it was awful, and a lot of times when I was hugely doubtful that it was even worth carrying on but you just keep plugging away. The, the difference between a professional writer and an amateur is simply that the pros do get to the end. I mean, that is the only difference. So I just knew if I just kept going, and by the end, by the end of the process, I'd written it and done another draft and then done another draft. I was very pleased with it, but writers are a funny, horrible bunch of, of strange quirks. So throughout the process, I was hugely uh, doubtful and as soon as it, was, as it was done, I knew it was the best thing I'd ever done. And now <laughs> exactly. I'm back to doubtful again. So we're all sort of megalomaniacs of low self-esteem. So we just keep sort of a, don't live with a writer, for heaven's sake.
1: Do you have a preference, though, in terms of the writing for TV or writing for for books? Uh, n- no, not at all. But
0: both of them are equally horrible and delightful, <laughs> if you see what I mean. And generally what happens is that at the end of working on the TV show, which is which is voices and noise, and decision-making to do with things that you shouldn't have to decide. For example, you might write a story of the week character in and discover that that actor has resigned from the show. You know, there's a lot of just managing stuff, um, not just, you know, budgets and actors and, and locations. And then at the end of that, oh, the joy of then going to a world of books where anything can happen because you just have to write the sentence and it is summoned into being. But then, of course, the fear and the terror of not having the support that you have in the world of telly. So by the end of doing a book, I'm desperate to get back to telly. And then vice versa, I'm very, 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 very lucky. One, to be employed as a writer, but really to be able to go from one world of telly into books and then back again for the time being. They'll stop me soon enough.
1: Absolutely. But to have that balance, though, is great, as you said, to, to go from one to the other. So what are you working on at the moment?
0: Well at the moment I'm working on the series 11 of Death in Paradise which is very very exciting indeed and we've got lots of things uh, planned which I can't talk about. Please do we we want some we want
1: some insights.
0: (laughs) I know and we've got very very exciting surprise that will be unleashed on the nation if they so wish which again I can't talk about but yes um, it's it's funny how much we love Working on the show. I was just sitting in the office this morning, just looking at there's four of us in the script department, generally, who, who would meet on a script. I thought, we're just this bunch of grown ups who are paid to sit in a room working out how to do a locked room mystery and should it have a balcony? Have we done anything with locks for a while? It's such a joy doing that, so we're working on that, but I'm also planning book two in the Marlowe Murder Club, it has sold very well and been very well received, so I'm doing the second book of that, and that's proving more challenging because I've got a deadline on that that implies that I should have started writing two months ago, and I haven't started writing two months ago, and I can't change that. So some point later this year, I'm gonna have to fit two months of work into a day and somehow it'll all get done. It does generally get done, I have found. But Marlon Murder Clark, Book two, Death and Paradise series eleven. That's my that's what is keeping me up at night.
1: Let's just hope your publisher is not listening.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I've had that sticky conversation in which of course, because it's the world of publishing it's been made absolutely clear to me that it is very important that I get it right and it takes as long as it takes. Because now I sort of now want to hit the deadline because I've been given the freedom to miss it.
1: And you'll have the pressure of it definitely better be a bestseller or uh, or there'll be no more.
0: Exactly. Well, that's the truth of being a writer. Every time you finish writing you do think, oh is that it? I've been found out this time. So yes I'm gainfully employed this year and uh, next year you can look after itself, can't it?
1: Exactly. Well, Robert Thorogood, thank you for joining us here on Inside Books. And you'll find the Marlow Murder Club online or at your local bookshop now. The next episode of Inside Books will be out soon. Just keep an eye on our Twitter feed for details. The handle is at InsideBooks E. And if you want to hear other episodes, just search for us on the various audio platforms and don't forget to leave us a rating or review. I'm Breda Brown. Until next time, keep reading.
0: Inside Books is a unique media production.